Good News Ministries of GNN.org presents The Story in the Bible. Now, here is Terry Modica. Now we move to the book of Titus. Before his arrest, Paul had ministered for a short time in Crete, and he left Titus in charge of that community. They were a lazy, wicked, dishonest bunch. Paul's aware of the fact that some of the leaders working under Titus might have some of these Cretan personality traits. So he tells Titus to carefully evaluate the characters of whomever is being raised up for a leader before you put him in authority. Look to find out whose motives are unethical. Look under the surface at their motives. And when you find someone with unethical motives, silence them. And Titus, you yourself role model what a true Christian is. Teach and model the true Christian lifestyle. So if you want to know how to be a role model, read Titus. Then we get to Philemon. Now, they didn't have the postal service back there, and they certainly didn't have email. The way the letters were delivered from town to town was by foot. Paul would send one of his team members. The letter that Paul wrote to the Colossians, he said, Joe, go take this letter all the way over to Coloss to deliver this. When this unnamed person, who I'm calling Joe, delivered this letter, he met up with Onesimus. You see his name right there, verse 10. My child Onesimus. Onesimus was a runaway slave. He had stolen something from his master and in fear ran away from him. The crime that he had committed, the theft, because he was a slave, he deserved death. He was an inferior being, so kill him for stealing something. So Onesimus had run for his life, and he meets up with this Christian. And this Christian Joe, whoever he was, introduces him to Paul. Paul converts this slave, Onesimus. And now that he is a Christian, Paul is saying, you've got to reconcile with the master who you stole from. But, but he'll kill me. He's not going to accept my apology. He's mad at me. He wants to set an example to all the other slaves. He's not going to let me get away with this. So Paul writes this letter to Philemon. Philemon was the slave master, the owner of Onesimus. The theme of the letter is this. Paul says to Philemon, what would God do? Think about what would God do. That's the way you should treat Onesimus. Well, Philemon was a Christian, so Paul had the freedom to be able to tell him this. Have you heard about the bracelet that says, WWJD, it means what would Jesus do? That got started by a youth group in a Catholic church, I believe in Michigan. This one little youth group came up with that slogan, WWJD. And they began putting it on bracelets. And they wore it to school. And their friends would ask them, what's that mean? And they'd say, it means what would Jesus do? And it became an open door for witnessing and evangelizing. And this caught on. The idea is when someone asks you what those initials mean, you then give it to them as you explain to them what it means. And they in turn are supposed to wear it until someone asks them what it means. What a powerful way to evangelize and open doors for evangelization. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because not only does it tie in with what Paul is saying here, but it shows how a community, a small Christian community, in this case it was a youth group, can make a big difference. 
you catch on to something that's living out the Sermon on the Mount and you start being bold with it and sharing it, making it visible to others, and it can make a humongous difference. So Paul says, think about how Jesus would handle this. Think about what God has done for you, Philemon. You were enslaved to sin. Then you were converted. God forgave you and set you free. Now imitate Jesus. Forgive your slave and set him free. Treat him as your brother, an equal. Love him like a brother. And in the course of doing that, if you realize that he really is your brother, then you want to set him free. And Paul went on to say, don't just set him free. Make him a member of your family. You don't have to lose him as a servant because if you treat him like a member of the family, he's going to want to help out. Okay, that's the story behind Philemon. Next comes Hebrews. By the title, you can guess who it was written to, the Jewish community. The Jewish Christian community, though. This is not like the book of Matthew written to convert Jews to Christianity. This is written to those who have already been converted. These were Christians who were strongly attached to their Jewish identity. And because they were strongly Christian but still living in the Jewish community, they were persecuted by their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters who were not converted. And as a result of being persecuted for believing in Jesus, they suffered a lot. The theme of Hebrews is, is Jesus Christ worth all of this suffering? And of course, his answer is yes. He says the way of Christ is better than Judaism and everything else put together. Turn to chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Basically, it says, don't be afraid to suffer because Satan has no power over you. Verse 14 says, the children share in the blood and flesh. He, Jesus, likewise shared in them that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil, and free those who through fear of death had been subject to slavery all their life. Fear enslaves us, enslaves us to Satan. If we stop being afraid to suffer, then we are no longer enslaved to Satan. He can't touch us. Don't be afraid to suffer because Satan has no power over you. If you are afraid to suffer, then Satan has a hold of you. Follow in Jesus' footsteps and Satan cannot follow you there. And Jesus' footsteps went all the way through the cross. Remember, after the cross comes resurrection all the time. Note chapter 7, verse 17. I'm going to make a real quick reference. I'd love to talk about this, but I'm running out of time. Just highlight that and then read it in context later. Because in verse 17 of chapter 7, Melchizedek is mentioned. Now, remember him from the Old Testament? He's saying here that Jesus belongs to the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was not a Levite priest. So the author of Hebrews is saying that unlike the Levite priests, Jesus is a high priest, a true priest. Melchizedek's priesthood was based on holiness and eternal life. That's where Jesus' priesthood comes from. The Levites were full of rules and regulations, and their priesthood came from that. Jesus is not a God of rules and regulations. He's a God of love and eternity. That's basically what this is talking about here. But I wanted to point that out to you because in verse 17... It is testified, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. If you listen carefully to Eucharistic prayer number one at Mass, you will hear that line. That's why I wanted to point it out. Okay, moving to the book of James. 
the author of this, was a relative of Jesus. If you look back, keep your thumb there in James, but look back in Matthew 13, verse 55. The people are amazed that Jesus is teaching what he's teaching. And they're saying, is he not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? There's James. Proof that the word brother here does not mean literal brother like we think of, but a relative in general. Somewhere else in the gospel, it mentions Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and Joseph is another form of the word Joseph, and it also mentions Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's a different Mary where it mentions Mary, the mother of James. It is clearly distinct from being Mary, the mother of Jesus. Two separate Marys. So this James, going back to the letter that he wrote, This James is writing this epistle, but he wants to be sure that the people who read it don't think that his authority comes from being a relative of Jesus. He's saying that his authority comes from God and the calling upon him that God has given him. His authority comes from being one who was a sinner who has been forgiven. So whenever somebody says to you that you can't possibly do something You can't be involved in the ministry you want to be in or you can't do a project that you want to do that you feel the Lord is calling you to do. Maybe it's an AIDS ministry. Maybe someone is saying you can't get involved in AIDS ministry because I remember when you used to condemn the homosexuals and you said they deserve to get AIDS. It's a punishment from God. So you're not the right person to do this AIDS ministry. You can say, I am too, because Jesus has forgiven me for that. And that's the authority that I have that says I am right for this job. That's what happened to James here. James had become a pillar of the leadership team in Jerusalem. He was part of that council of Jerusalem, that first council. He was one of the top leaders, one of the cardinals, so to speak, of the day. And the theme, the overall theme of the book of James is this. There's more to being a Christian than believing in Jesus. You have to be Jesus. You have to act out what Jesus would do, WWJD. Your actions show that you have faith. Real faith is living out the Sermon on the Mount, living out the Gospel. That's the theme of James. The two books of Peter. The letters to Peter were sent to believers in several providences of Asia Minor. The theme is when you suffer harassment from your pagan neighbors and when you suffer from the normal hassles of everyday life, don't forget that you're a Christian. Live up to your calling as a Christian. When you're facing the hassles, the trials, the discouragements, don't stop doing what the Sermon on the Mount says to do. First Peter also says live up to your calling from God with your lives, not just with your lips. He's emphasizing that it's not so much what we say that counts, but what we do proves that whether what we say is real or not. And in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, this is advice to presbyters. It's not talking about Presbyterians. A presbyter was that early version of the priest. That was the word they gave for priest. So when you see the word presbyter, just substitute the word priest in there. Second Peter, the theme of that is... There are men confusing you who have distorted the gospel. This particular heresy, this particular distortion of the gospel, was that the only part of us that mattered was our spiritual part. So it didn't matter what we did to our bodies. 
You could do with it whatever you wanted. You could get as fat as you wanted and not worry about your cholesterol level. You could smoke. <laughs> and this is an error he's refuting here. The distorted gospel was you could do whatever you wanted to do with your body, and that included sex in perverted ways or outside of marriage. You could do whatever you wanted with your body as long as you were a spiritual person. As long as you went to Mass, you were okay. You could do with your body what you wanted. So Second Peter is saying, uh-uh, don't listen to this lie. And another thing that's being addressed in Second Peter is the Christians are starting to get tired of waiting for the second coming of Christ. Jesus, before his ascension, even before his crucifixion, he talked about his second coming. And the Christians kept thinking it's going to happen tomorrow, or maybe even today, but not the day after that. The day after that, we'll be in our glorified earth. They were beginning to get discouraged because the second coming hadn't happened yet. And they were wondering, did Jesus forget about them? They were beginning to doubt that Jesus would even return ever. So in the second letter from Peter, he says, remember this is the Pope speaking. This is the first two encyclicals that we have from a Pope. He said, God's slowness to bring about the second coming of Christ is for good. It's to allow more people to have opportunities to convert. He's giving us 2,000 and how many thousands of more years we don't know yet. He's giving us lots of time to get as many peoples into the kingdom of God before he wraps it all up. The whole third chapter is dealing with the issue. And verses 9 and 10 talks about God's time frame and his perspective of time. He's patient with you, not wishing that anyone should perish, so that should all come to repentance. So we need to not be frustrated with God, but rather realize that he is being very patient with us. Then we have three letters written by John. The author of the books of John very well may have been the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John. We're not absolutely sure on that, but we think it may have been. And this John was probably Jesus' best friend, the bestest of his closest friends. In the Gospel of John, he refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. In his humility, he won't put his own name in there. But he does refer to himself as the one whom Jesus... Well, Jesus loved everybody, of course. But it's a way of expressing their very special, unique friendship. There was something about their personalities that the two of them meshed where Jesus really felt that he could relax with this guy. He could be himself with this guy. He could speak what he wanted to this guy, and this guy would have an open heart, ready to listen, even if he didn't understand. It was a real friendship. It wasn't just a teacher-student relationship. It was a real friendship. And he had friendships with the other ones, too. But there was something special with John. If you remember the scene of the Last Supper, we see John laying his head on the bosom, the chest of Jesus. Now, today, someone might say that proves they were homosexual and ruined the whole concept. But what it really shows is that friendship is supposed to be that intimate. Now, not everybody has it that intimate. But it didn't matter whether they were the same sex or the opposite sex. These two best friends were close enough that they felt comfortable with each other physically. John could rest his head on Jesus' chest in the middle of dinner. I really like to envision that scene because I like to pretend sometimes that I'm John resting my head on Jesus' lap, especially when I'm going through some difficulties. It's also a great way to get to sleep when I'm having trouble getting to sleep. 
I imagine myself with my head in Jesus' lap, and he's stroking my hair or giving me a massage and giving me relaxing words, encouragement. And before I know it, it's the next morning and I'm rested. It's interesting that this best friend of Jesus had a temper. His nickname was Son of Thunder. That's in the Gospel. But when he had his conversion, he channeled his bad temper into a strong passion of love for the Lord, a passionate love for the Lord. He channeled that same energy that went into anger into an enthusiastic love for the Lord. These letters that John wrote, he wrote them because there was confusion started by some false Christians, Christians by name only. They allowed themselves to be baptized. They joined the church. They put their name on the membership rolls. They even put money in the collection basket and signed the envelope with their name. But they were not converted in their hearts. We can go to church all our lives and never become a Christian. Any more than if you work in a barn. Let's say you're a farmer. You have livestock and you work in a barn all your life. It doesn't make you a cow. If you're a mechanic and you spend a lot of your time in the garage, it doesn't make you a car. Someone who attends Mass every day, let alone every Sunday, doesn't make you a Christian. Well, there were these kinds of false Christians in the churches back then. And sometimes these false Christians try to teach things from their point of view. And that infects the Christians and the purity of their faith. That's what's happened to a lot of us, if not all of us. The reason why we need to even be here in this class We need some of our ideas corrected. And the reason for that is because there's been a lot of false Christians, people who think they're Christian, but their hearts have not been changed. And in their more worldly wisdom than godly wisdom, in good intentions, have tried to teach us things. Maybe it was our parents. Maybe it was our CCD teachers. Maybe it even was priests. Maybe it was our friends. Maybe it's the TV shows. But we have absorbed false ideas. And that was happening back in those days. And John wanted to address this issue and deal with the confusion and the errors that these false Christians were feeding into the community. Specifically, the problem was that these false Christians were bringing pagan magic beliefs into the Catholic Church, the Christian Church. They were bringing the occult into the church. You know, that happens today. There are churches that have psychic fairs. There are churches that have workshops on astrology. There are retreat centers, Catholic retreat centers. Up in New Jersey, the bishop shut one down after giving it lots and lots of time to correct themselves. So the first letter that John wrote answers the question, what's the truth about the Christ? In today's New Age philosophies, teachings, you will often hear the phrase, the Christ. One of the common things that's popular is find the Christ within you. What they're really saying is discover that you are God. Tap into your own divine powers. That's new age. That's what was going on there. John answers the question, what's the truth about the Christ? Was it a spirit that emanated from the cosmos? Does that sound like today's new age or what? Then he also answered the question, how can we tell if the person speaking to us is a real believer or a heretic? And then he answers the question, how can I be sure I'm not a heretic? 
That's a question that in humility we all need to be asking every day. With what I believe, how can I be sure I'm free from errors? Read the first book of John to find out how. The second letter of John says, Love these heretics. It is right to love everyone, even the heretics. However, love ceases to be love when it loses sight of truth. Just because someone who is a New Age person says they love us doesn't mean they really love us. If they are teaching us lies, they may intend to be loving us, but they are not giving us love because love is God, and God has nothing to do with lies. So the second letter of John is saying that love ceases to be love when it loses sight of truth. The third letter of John Demetrius is a Christian, an apostle, who is going to the people that John is writing to. And the third letter of John is a letter of introduction to tell the Christian community, don't worry about Demetrius, he's not one of those heretics. You can trust him. He will give you truth and love. He's my messenger. And this was an especially important letter for him to write because one of the leaders of that Christian community was very controlling and very arrogant and did not want somebody else coming in and saying, let me teach you. So John had to give him this letter of credit. The book of Jude. Jude was probably somebody that no one ever heard of. He didn't have much of a reputation. He was just in the shadows too much. So he's basically saying, you can believe what I'm saying about the gospel. You can believe what I'm saying about Jesus because I'm related to James. Remember James who's related to Jesus? James is saying, don't look at my authority because I'm related to Jesus. Here's Jude saying, do look at my authority because I'm related to James. (laughs) But the theme here that Jude wants to get across, he's trying to address a wrong idea that's circulating amongst the Christians. The idea that God's forgiveness means you can do anything you want. I can go ahead and have sex outside of marriage because God understands. He forgives me. I can continue to be married to my husband and have sex with him even though it's my second marriage and I never got an annulment from the first one. And we're not married in the church. And Jesus says that that's committing adultery. But God forgives me. I've heard this. You know, I know some friends who worked this through. And at first they were thinking, he forgives us, and he certainly doesn't want us to cause tension in our marriage because she was in Christian community. She was able to work through this instead of being stuck. And her first thought was, if I tell my husband, when she discovered what Jesus said about adultery, it was her husband who needed the annulment. He said, if I tell my husband that we shouldn't have sex because we're not legitimately married, he's going to not be happy with me. I'm going to be causing division with that. And God doesn't want us to have division. She went from there to saying, well, God, help me out with this. I'm hearing your Holy Spirit convict me on this, that we are sinning, that I am sinning by saying, God's forgiving us, therefore everything is okay, I can do what I want. With God's help, she found a way to approach her husband with it. Because the Holy Spirit had been asked for help by the wife, the husband was being prepared by the Holy Spirit for this, and he agreed that he should get an annulment, and they lived like brother and sister until the annulment came through. Then they got remarried in the church, and we went to their wedding. When you do things with the Holy Spirit, it works out. Jude is addressing the issue that just because God's forgiving, it doesn't mean you can do whatever you want to do. 
You've been listening to Story in the Bible. For more faith builders or to learn more about this ministry, come visit our website. You'll find online resources and lots more to help you know the Father's love and grow closer to Christ and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Visit gnm.org today.